Here at Sanctuary Spa, we know how stressful life can be. Rushing around, no time for us. That's why we've developed a new generation of body moisturization for modern life. Apply Sanctuary Spa Wet Skin Radiance Jelly straight from the shower for daily exfoliation and hydration with our new two-in-one gel, locking in three times the moisture, leaving your skin radiant. Make it part of your routine. Just shower, apply and dry. Sanctuary Spa Wet Skin Radiance Jelly. Available now exclusively at Boots. You don't remember anything last night, huh? I got really melodramatic, didn't I? You told me that you weren't really on a vacation. That you've been looking for a job for a year. And your boyfriend didn't work out. You are out of control. What? I've packed two things. They're in the bedroom. What? And since you didn't have any money, you decided to move back here. Is there anything else? Don't remember anything. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm David Chen, and with me is... Devendra Hardwire. And joining us today, she's a news writer at SlashFilm.com, Huai Chen Bui, welcome back to the Slash Filmcast. How are you doing today, HT? I'm good. Thanks for having me again. Great to have you on. Uh, and we should mention that Jeff Kanata was going to join us tonight, but he had some issues with childcare, and we are very understanding and supportive of that. He may join us later on in this episode, uh, so stay tuned to potentially hear Jeff Kanata. Uh, but yeah, we're gathered here today uh, to record the Slash Filmcast and, and actually just do a review of the new Nacho Vigalondo movie, Colossal. Uh, we had three hours worth of podcasting last week, uh, so this is going to be an abridged episode for this week. We hope you enjoy it anyway. Uh, as we talk about this movie that has uh, created a lot of buzz online for a variety of different reasons, it's Nacho Vigalondo, one of our favorite filmmakers, making another movie, uh, and it deals with a lot of themes that are relevant in today's political environment. Monsters. <laughs> Deals with monsters. Monsters. Monsters male, are always male relevant. Male entitlement, yeah. uh, toxicity monsters. of masculinity, all mm-hmm. that good stuff. So before we begin, I do want to mention that uh, I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb. We will talk about the basic plot of the film. Uh, and I would actually encourage you to check it out if you if you haven't seen the plot. If you don't know what the plot is, don't mm-hmm. watch the trailer. Go check out the movie and uh, and be surprised because this movie is really surprising. There are a lot of unique aspects to it, and it is possible to go in fresh since it's a small uh, kind of indie film. That being said, uh, we're going to talk about the, talk about the premise. Here we go. Uh, Gloria is an out of work party girl forced to leave her life in New York and move back home. When reports surface that a giant creature is destroying Seoul, South Korea, she gradually comes to the realization that she is somehow connected to this phenomenon. The movie stars Anne Hathaway, Jason Sudeikis, uh, Tim Blake Nelson, Dan Stevens, and a bunch of other really talented people. Devinder Hardwar, this is a movie that uh, you really pulled for uh, us to discuss here on the Slash Filmcast. Uh, so what was it that really resonated with you about Colossal? I this movie is astounding. Like that, that's pretty much it. And uh, it's Nacho Vigalondo doing kind of what he does best, right? Like taking a genre that we're used to, like with time crimes and uh, like with extraterrestrial, and just like putting putting a bit of a twist on it, and also a very like emotional and human beat to it as well. And I love that he just keeps doing that. I haven't seen Open Windows is uh, is that weird like multi screen thing he did a while ago, 
Um, but I love time crimes. The extraterrestrial is very good. Probably not as memorable. I just love that this is a great genre movie that really shows that we could do something new. And it's like, it's so good. It's just the story it tells is so, so well done. So meaningful. And I think so important too, because you don't quite expect where it's going to go. Yeah. It so, definitely takes some unexpected turns. In yeah. My opinion. Yeah. So I love all of that. I love being surprised by the story. And that's something that Biglunda does so well. Um, great performances all around too. Especially Jason Sudeikis. And, uh, you know, like, I love this movie all around. Like, it's just so well done. I love the emotional beats. Um, my one my one thing, as I saw this movie and, uh, you know, as I came out of it, it did feel really weird that this movie about, you know, realization of a bunch of, uh, you know, white folks uh, basically involves the, you know, the death of, like, countless, um, you know, <laughs> Asian people, faceless yeah. Asians with faceless no, like, mm-hmm. yeah, no, like, they they have nothing, right? The, maybe we, we talk to one person at the end of the movie, and even that's not quite something. So I, th- I think, like, that's my only thing. I just wish this imagery wasn't there. Um, if the city that this giant monster was appearing in was, like, you know, a, a more diverse metropolitan city or something, that problem just wouldn't even be there. And I actually don't think that particular setting uh, of Seoul... Other than, like, evoking, like, oh, man, like, re- remember other giant monster movies, which right. took place in, like, you know, mm-hmm. Asian cities, and, you know, you have the screaming crowds and everything. I think that's really the only reason it's there, and if that were changed to, you know, like, Paris or something, or just a more diverse city, um, that one little niggle would not be there. Well, I have more thoughts on that that we'll have to get into in spoilers, but uh, HT, why don't you tell us your overall thoughts on Colossal, and then let's dive into spoilers. Yeah, so I have I had not seen any Nacho Vigalondo movies um, before this, so I went in completely unprepared. I was really astounded by how unpredictable this movie was, and that was really refreshing for me just because um, even in indie movies or genre movies, you can kind of tell where the plot was going. But for Colossal, I had really no idea because I went in with the marketing expecting a sort of surrealist comedy Almost. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Vigalondo previously described this as uh, being John Malkovich meets uh, um, Godzilla, which mm-hmm. isn't quite accurate. Um, uh-huh. I'd say it's more kind of like the marriage of you know your typical indie dramedy with a kaiju movie. Although like the kaiju part is kind of inconsequential, like you were saying, Devendra. They just use it to evoke like that sort yeah. of symbolism. feeling you get of it. Yeah, the symbolism yeah. of it. Like, they just use it as the monster, as, as metaphor. Um, and, like, metaphor for only, you know, white people's struggles, essentially. But, like, they aren't any less important. But, you know, they don't really have anything to do with the kaiju genre. Mm-hmm. But um, I really liked it. I really liked that whole idea of making to- toxic masculinity the ultimate villain in this. And um, it kind of continues the whole... S- trend of the social thriller that we've seen with like get out um that has been ongoing and i really like that this was such a surprise and was such um so well done in that sense yeah like when you say get out like a genre movie that has pretty clear social commentary right Mm -hmm. yeah Um, yeah exactly 
Well, uh, I, I think it's really hard to talk about this movie without talking about spoilers. I will just say I enjoyed the movie as well. Uh, I agree with a lot of what you guys said. A lot of unexpected turns. I thought it was going to zig and the movie zagged instead. <laughs> and uh, I, I just found it to be pretty delightful overall. And I, I think it has a lot to say. Uh, it also does some things really uh, in, in a unique fashion uh, and just sh- shows you – just stuff that you don't you, you're not going to see in any other movie this year. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's a lot that's really refreshing about it. Uh, and so, if there's no other thoughts uh, pre spoilers, I think we can dive into spoilers pretty quickly. Uh, I'll mm-hmm. just say, yeah, the, the performances all around are, are really solid, and uh, I liked the way that uh, the the movie built on itself. If that makes sense, that yeah. that yeah. there's. Uh, decisions and uh, events that occur earlier on that then later on, like it, it really, uh, it's paid mm-hmm. off at the end. I'm trying to be as motivations as are very clear, yeah. and I love it when a movie is yeah. like emotionally true, especially like when its characters do. Yeah, everything is yeah. earned in yeah. this film. Yeah. Agreed, agreed, agreed. All right, well, let's get to spoilers for Colossal starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. Can I see this coming? No, but you won't find it because, of course, you're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret. You want to be fooled. I think one of the great assets of this movie is Jason Sudeikis. And mm-hmm. sure. specifically that you believe, at least I believe, that this was going to be a romance story between yeah. him and uh, Oscar and Gloria. Well, the, the movies that they've kept trying to sell us Jason Sudeikis in, right? right. Oh, he's, he's that charming, lovable goofball, and you'd love him as your boyfriend, so <laughs> love him, please? <laughs> yeah, they really, they really leaned into the whole, his whole affability that's yeah. part of his persona. You know, the movie is unintentionally i don't know if it's intentional maybe it's completely mm-hmm. intentional that the asian people are faceless you know that that the asian people well, it's it's those crowds right are disposable yeah maybe it's maybe it's completely intentional that like it, it is yeah. a commentary on uh white people's uh tendency to completely subsume the individuality of non-white people uh to white people's needs right like uh, ma- maybe, maybe that's a commentary yeah. i don't know I don't if it was think... intentional it felt pretty inconsequential to me just kind of <laughs> yes. like yeah like oh it just happened to be that way but, yeah. but you it, understand, like, if it was intentional, I mean, even if, even if it's not intentional, I, cho- I choose to read the movie that way. I choose can. to read it as a commentary on how uh, white people are imperiling uh, minority groups uh, for the sake of their own self-actualization. Uh, I, th- I, I think uh, Vigilando talked a little bit about that thing. But what I what's interesting about him is that I've read a couple interviews, right? And he he's not just saying – you know, he's not doing the thing where he's like completely not going to tell you what it's saying, but he's almost saying like what the story is telling is just like a very specific thing, right? Like he almost can't control. Right. And what do you what think? What telling. do you think that is? What is that specific thing? What is the, as, as Bruce Lee in the, in the chat room asks, mm-hmm. what is the thesis of this film? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm asking you, Devendra, like what, what do you think it is? I don't, I don't think there's a thesis when it comes to the, when Asian it comes to the Asian people. Yeah, I think that is like him evoking monster movies and things he loved as a kid. Um, and uh, he did talk a bit about that, too, I think. And I, 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 that's understandable. I think any director working in a genre thing does it for the love of the genre. I just wish like those bits – you could read it as sort of like, you know, this is the collateral damage of these emotionally insecure white people. And it's just like, you know, this is what happens. People die. 
I do think the movie does a good job of um, eventually once they realize what's happening, like the the fact that innocent people are getting hurt becomes a plot point. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wish that occurred before like the first like drunken session where she definitely killed people and she, you know, she feels bad about it. And I think that's key to the character too. Cause that's kind of, it drives the whole final conflict and everything. Um, for, but for I don't, me, yeah, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Devendra. Yeah. I just don't know if that was necessary. I think it's, it is sort of flippant. It's like, Oh, these people died. Oh crap. And they kind of joke about it at, front, at first and then not so much. I, I, again, not saying this was intentional, mm-hmm. um, not even saying this is a correct reading of the movie. It's my reading. of It's one of my readings of the movie, which is that uh, – you know what I was reminded of when I, uh, when I saw this movie and s- mm-hmm. saw uh, these people just randomly off all these Asian people is – uh, the people who like the Bernie Bros, to be honest with you, um, right. people who said, you know, no, people who were like, well, I'm not getting my way, so yeah. uh, I'm just gonna uh, throw, my, I'm not gonna vote at all, you know. And it's, who well, can- the male side of that for sure, yeah, yeah, and, and it is a distinctly privileged point of view to be able to vote your uh, conscience, like to be able to not. To be able to say, hey, I'm just going to sit this one out because I'm not getting exactly what I want. Who cares what the impact is for other people? Right. Or because I'll burn I'm it not, all down. Right, because I'm not going to be impacted. Right, yeah. I, as a, as a white person uh, or uh, sometimes a white male, I'm not going to be impacted. So, <laughs> hey, it doesn't matter who gets elected because it's, it's not going to affect me. That's what, I, that's what came to mind when I watched this I do this wonder movie. if this yeah. election is coloring your view of this movie. <laughs> oh, say. for sure, for sure. I I, I, again, I don't yeah, think yeah, it was yeah. intentional. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, no, hey, it's, it's definitely an aspect of that, right? Speaking, of, uh, speaking of white males, uh, <laughs> Jeff Kanata is back. Jeff. When, whenever someone says white male <laughs> – uh, uh, an, angel, an angel delivers a white mail to the <laughs> conversation. Jeff, we're in spoiler section for uh, Colossal. Uh, well, that didn't back. take long. Yeah, no, because we didn't want to spoil – like there's so many surprises in this movie. You know, We didn't want to yeah. spoil too much. Um, but we were just talking about kind of some of the meanings of this movie. Now, uh, putting aside the people who chose to vote third party – uh, let's uh, the kind of more <laughs> common interpretation of what's going on is. Uh, you guys listen to the S Town podcast yet? The, yes. the great S Town podcast. I've only uh, listened to the first episode. I will not spoil anything from the S Town podcast, but I will say that uh, at one point, you know, it's uh, about people down south. Like the S Town podcast largely is about the south and about the people there, and that there is this tendency of people down there to have this attitude known as fuck it meaning like oh uh who like it, it doesn't matter what the consequences of this action might be uh I, I my life is already incredibly bleak anyway so just fuck it let's vote for donald trump or let's uh jump in this uh river full of battery acid or something you know whatever whatever action they're going to take uh that there is this kind of uh this this uh, mm-hmm. recklessness that kind of pervades some areas of the south uh and that came to mind when i was watching colossal as well this idea that jason sudeikis's life in this movie uh oscar's life is not super awesome and so if he has the opportunity to hurt people to lord it over people uh that he's going to use it right yeah. and i mean it feels a little different but 
Because he's, I mean, not, I feel like he's that, not desperate. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like those aspects are somewhat part of the movie, mm-hmm. like his situation and his sort of, you know, being stuck in a small town. Um, but I feel like that takes a backseat to the whole metaphor of his toxic masculinity mm-hmm. and like fragile male ego. It's insecurity. Like sure. that's what it is. It's lashing out because he's not good enough. And then here's this girl that he's pined for, you know, his entire life, who it turns out it's not that he had a crush on her because that seems like part of it. But also he envied her in a weird way and mm-hmm. sort of like latched onto her. Um, so I, I think that all kind of comes together. So I don't think it's as simple as like just the fuck it mentality. It's more like this, like, oh, man, I've I've hated this person for so long. And it's like it, it's just like a slow boiling simmer of insecurity and how that unleashes um that's what it feels like more for me and that all ties directly into you know the whole idea of like what this movie is actually about um like very specifically about toxic masculinity and everything i just like that that one bit about i i just wish like we didn't have to deal with the you know the crowds of faceless asian people uh getting killed for that um and one thing too uh the monster keeps reappearing in the same exact spot Fucking, fucking close down that part of the city. Why should people there? Why should yeah. they just I, hang out? I know they didn't evacuate anyone. They just kept going about their lives, and like they always are surprised that the monster appears. Like, oh it my god, how could we know? Time. Same time, same place. Quarantine that area, guys. That's that's like one. I don't know what was going on. It's there. it's monster movie one hundred and one. Quarantine that area. <laughs> Jeff Kanata. Uh, what are your overall thoughts on the movie? And you you said you had some specific things you wanted to share with us too, right? So uh, yeah, I, do you like Colossal? It's it's difficult. I'm coming into the the middle of this conversation, so I don't know what has been said or hasn't been said. But um, I thought the the science fiction concepts in in Colossal were just wonderful, and and I, you know I always advocate on the show for uh, r- clear rules, and I and I think in science fiction the story often benefits from understandable, very clear rules. They don't have to actually make any sense like there's no there's, we don't need a reason for everything we just need to know what the thing is and i think this movie does that really really well and proves that point like we don't have to i mean we do kind of get an origin for why this happened but even the origin is like oh lightning hit the thing so yeah, it works uh, and that's fine that's enough we just need to know like okay at this specific time this why and only these two people and here's where it has to happen all of that stuff i thought beautifully beautifully expressed uh, and, and a really awesome sci-fi idea. And I, I also uh, – I wonder if this – the inspiration of this was, was a little bit of like walking into a mocap studio and going, huh, <laughs> I wonder if that – like yeah. real what, – what would that be like? Anyway, um, I hear you guys talking about the toxic masculinity and stuff and I uh, – Sadly, I guess as the as the white male, it, it makes it, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I didn't find anything that Jason Sudeikis' character did to be believable. Hmm. I hmm. I completely I thought he ruined the movie. That character, not not his performance, he was fine, but mm-hmm. the the character, I just I was not along for any of that. I I loved her story and like her sort of where she was in her life and her struggles and all and finding real meaning through this crazy set of circumstances she finds herself in and this weird power that she gets but i didn't find his turn to be motivated i didn't find the setup for how he ends up behaving to be sufficient mm-hmm. i i i it 
we're, I guess we're all we're supposed to believe it all came down to that one poetic moment when he, you know he smashed her thing because he was jealous of her, and then forever. I just it just I never bought it. Right, I never right, bought right. any of it. Well, the, the, what I love is that there are a lot of breadcrumbs throughout this movie. Right, like, I think by the end you realize him coming every day, being like, "Oh yeah, you, you asked for this thing, right?" Like, "Oh, I'm just helping out. You need a couch. You, you need a TV. I'm a nice guy. I'm a nice guy." By the end of the movie, you realize. Uh, he's gaslighting her. Like yeah. the movie has these breadcrumbs all throughout where it's like he, he definitely is infatuated with her in a weird way. And you think it's love. And I think that one bit early on, um, I don't think it all comes down to him like crushing her thing, but that does reveal like an inherent jealousy of what's going on. So yeah, the turn, uh, the turn really happens once he discovers his power. Right. Like yeah. this insecure guy who didn't have anything and now he has something and now it's it's abused immediately. Yeah, I agree with Devendra. I think it. What, there are a lot of red flags that pop up throughout the movie. And a lot of it is informed by I, our idea of the nice guy. Um, TM, I guess you would say. Um, so it's like the idea of his obsession with her and his fixation with her and that becoming malicious like at the beginning when he's giving her furniture he gives her a tv and a futon out of the kindness of his heart but in the end um after the reveal of his um robot form he gives her this whole truck full of antiques from his grandma's house and that becomes sort of um malicious like almost in a blackmail threatening kind of way like if you don't accept these things something worse will ha- something bad will happen and she didn't want it right too yeah I she didn't she want it she was that. yeah that was the point where she was like i don't want i don't think that whatever you give me i won't give you anything in return if, if that makes sense like I, I, the, the scene though when he uh sets off the fireworks in the, in the oh bar. man that was a really I, I just scene. I, I guess I don't. It felt like a scene that works really good on a, on a page, and is this amazing piece of writing of like this speech that he gives and the metaphor he uses and the, the setup of like what's the most I don't remember what the word he uses the most um, you the, know the, yeah the most dangerous thing I can dangerous do. was it dangerous something something so anyway dangerous thing that happened in this bar yes. or something yes. like that yeah. yeah. Uh, and then they're standing around and the, the thing is just every, there's fire everywhere and he's completely calm and in control. It's I didn't buy it for a second. It, it, we turned into a cartoon. Well, what what I, didn't you buy about it, Jeff? Uh, that, that he, he would, would do something so destructive? Or? That, he would, that he would do it. The way, the way he does it. The, the purpose of doing it. Like what does he do? And the, and the, well, the sort of weird confidence <laughs> that he has that she's not going to leave or – yeah, this is uh, again. This goes towards my. This goes towards my point of like, fuck it. You know that there's just there's uh, there is this kind of recklessness of there. It's of much like, more than fuck it. Though. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I agree. Yeah. I agree with your guys' points. I'm just saying that uh, there's a strain of that that I think runs yeah, through yeah, the entire yeah. film. Um, yeah. But I'm sorry, HT. What were you going to say? See, that escalation works for me because it that scene especially feels re- really reminiscent of. Um, abusive relationships especially mm-hmm. like a re- relationships in which the woman feels like she cannot escape or she cannot leave this relationship because she is um dependent on this other person and in a way like Anne Hathaway's character is because you know she if she stays with him then he won't you know kill countless people in Seoul Korea um and he and she he gets what she wants and he gets what he wants in getting to control her um 
So I think that like that part was again another manifestation of mm-hmm. this sort of um, ordinary, not ordinary, this um, problem that we see every day in our ordinary lives of, of domestic abuse and of abusive relationships. Yeah, it's really all about control, right? Like that scene, so reconstruct that scene, right? What happens? She brings in uh, Dan Stevens, another nice guy in a very different way. We should also at some point talk about how every man in this movie fails her. Um, they're terrible. Every man. Like <laughs> even if they're trying to do good and even if they're like she fucked up and just did shit, like every dude, even good-looking young jock dude fails her. Um, but so that scene, right? Reconstructing it, she brings Dan Stevens in, um, and then it becomes a dick measuring contest. That's what it immediately becomes, right? Like that whole awkward conversation, him not getting the coffee for the customer, and shit just escalates, right? And I think it is partially fuck it that yeah, I'll just I'll just burn all this down because you know what does the bar matter? He's a fucking giant robot now, you know, like <laughs> yeah. he's got more going on. Um, but yeah, he burns it all down, and then Elsa shows like how crazy he can be right this is how insane he is he still gets the girl and that's that's kind of what he's trying to prove to dan stevens that scene i love just because it's so goddamn unpredictable we had no clue what was going to happen uh yeah right because it's not grounded in any kind of reality from my perspective and 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 i i would so be on board with the idea of it being a abusive relationship, I, I I was ready for that to sort of be the central metaphor, and maybe it is that it just didn't land on me in the right way. I, I don't, I didn't buy that explanation for uh, that character's behavior because we ne- like I would understand if it was the Dan Stevens character because she has this whole back history and she keeps calling him in her times of need. Like that's the abusive relationship that I sort of get. That's weird. This is just some dude. Like he gives her a job that is who cares? Like I don't childhood, understand childhood friend and there is some connection. Like they know each other, right? He's not just some rando. There's somebody with like history and that's that's yeah, all I don't understand like the the I guess the idea of him being able to to kill a bunch of people in Korea is a, is a thing, but it it was such an abstract way to rope her into that behavior. I just didn't ever buy that he was that thing to her he was what thing uh jeff the abusive boyfriend the 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 i can't quit you the the guy that you know is is wrong but there's something that there's some power he has over her i never got that he had power over her, and i never understood why she allowed right. him to to so have like- reign over her the metaphor for his power over her being the um what the future victims of whatever rampage he makes if she leaves that doesn't that didn't ring true for you essentially i just thought that came so late in the process it was before it, it was before the bar scene like right, that dynamic was, had already yeah. been established you're saying yes yes yeah. yes uh, it felt to me like i don't know i mean well, I, I so i, I uh do you guys see this uh video essay that debuted recently called recently called born sexy yesterday do you guys see this <laughs> Yeah, um, um, it's a it's a video essay that I thought was actually really really well done, um, and I'd recommend anyone check it out. I'll link to it in the show notes. But it's essentially covers the trope. It shows you all the examples of uh, in in the past of how there's all these movies mm-hmm. where there are women who are very sexualized but who have the minds of children. 
right? Like right. literally children mm-hmm. uh, uh, or people who, are, who, who behave as children. Uh, think of Lilu from uh, Fifth Element, uh, Olivia Wilde's character in Tron Legacy, uh, and countless other examples that mm-hmm. are, you know, that the pop culture detective that's a YouTube channel covers in this Born Sexy Yesterday trope. And the conclusion he draws is that the Born Sexy Yesterday trope is about uh, here, I'm going to just re- read from the essay. The subtext of the trope is rooted in a deep-seated insecurity about sex and sexuality. The crux of the trope is a fixation on male superiority, a fixation with holding power over an innocent girl. But in order to make it socially acceptable, science fiction is employed to put the mind of that girl into a sexualized adult woman's body. End mm-hmm. quote. So it's basically about like me- men want to control women. They are threatened by women who are sexually experienced, who are very intelligent. And so there's this fantasy. Men have this fantasy that, oh, uh, there's like I can be in control of this person who uh, doesn't know any better, like does, is not familiar with right. the ways of the world right. and who will regard me as incredibly intelligent and powerful. Yeah, uh, and that – and, and so, so this, is, this is a trope that's existed over decades mm-hmm. and I just felt like – uh, Colossal took this trope and kind of flipped it, right? It's that mm-hmm. here's here's um, it's not that the girl is uh, younger or more inexperienced or more naive. It's that the guy now has all this power that he didn't have before. And what would happen if that if that occurred? And right? he's he's really naive in his own right. way too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that that trope is actually important too because we see her experience, right? We see her independence. Like once she has sex with the young dude, and uh, Oscar sees that. Then there's that whole other awkward bar scene, right? And that's – was that before – that was before the that Dan before, Stevens yeah. scene. Yeah, so this is how it leads up, Jeff, right? So then he starts – he's like, oh, oh, she slept with him. Well, ugh, man, I, I wanted to do that. I'm, I'm going to fucking just like put my foot down and like you know ruin my friendship with uh, the Tim Blake Nelson character, which how, – how heartbreaking was that? Like, just, like, the little things you see him doing, too, like, you assume that guy is up to something, you know, when he's going to the bathroom or doing stuff. So it's like a little, it's almost like a little Edgar Wright little tidbit in there. If you really go back and look at the movie, you could see him doing stuff. But the way Oscar calls that out, just, like, lording, like, everything he can be to be superior around everyone around him. That's what he starts doing immediately. Yeah. He drives so, away Oscar and, like, yeah, it's but, all it's all part of it. Basically, Jeff, uh, men are terrible. And yes. uh, this movie seems I'm to not going to argue with that, right? That and and, and that. I guess I don't know. Like, it, given that it, the Jason Sudeikis character, it surprised me. I did not anticipate yes. that's where the story would go, yes. but it did not feel unbelievable to me, right? Mm. Which I think is where you're saying it was not plausible to you. It was totally plausible to me because it plays into a lot of dynamics that uh, powerless men have with women. Um, mm. But it, it did not. It, it, it was not implausible to me that it would have happened that way. And we we so. never see them actually kiss, right? The Jason Sudeikis character. Like, he's just – he's always pining. He's always pining. <laughs> want to do something. He just never does it. And he's gaslighting. Meanwhile, you know, the handsome young dude, like, does the thing he wants and he gets pissed off about that. Um, there's a lot of, like, inadequacy going on there too. Um, but another interesting – like, Jeff, what do you think of Jason Sudeikis as an actor and as, like, a romantic comedy guy? Oh, I really like him. I think he's, a, yeah, I think he's an affable. There you go. Yeah. Okay, so you're you're used to seeing him as like you know affable, likable guy. Every time I see him, I'm like, that dude is up to something. Like <laughs> there is some smarminess. There, there's something going on. I just can't trust it. And I think this is the first movie I've seen with him in it that really 
veers into that territory. Like there is almost like a darkness to him. And that's true of a lot of comics. Um, you know, Michael Keaton has that. Bill Murray has that too. Um, but this movie veers into it in a really, that's kind of what made it feel believable to me too. Like that, the nice guyness turning into complete smarminess and that evolving into total evil, um, that felt, I don't know. And he played it so well too. He's like a natural at it. You know what this movie also reminds me of, or makes me think of, um, a lot of those male wish fulfillment rom-coms, uh, like quirky rom-coms like Garden State, 500 Days mm-hmm. of Summer, uh, Ruby Sparks, and this colossal feels like a commentary on those kind of films and uh, how those women are made out to be incredibly flat and incredible uh, again, wish fulfillment for the male protagonists who are often incredibly ordinary. Um, and this feels like it's taking that and turning it on its head by making Anne Hathaway's character so complicated and by making Jason Stakis' character, who we traditionally see as the um, charming, likable male lead, uh, into the villain. Right. It's mm-hmm. like what would happen if the manic pixie dream girl rejected you? Right, like mm-hmm. this is kind of a, a, a sort of logical extreme of that idea, I think. And um, they're monsters, right? Yeah, right. And, and, they're, and they're monsters, yeah. And, uh, and another lens of that, by the way, is like he, I think he sees her as the manic pixie dream girl too, right? right. He sees yeah. himself mm-hmm. exactly. as the lead in one of those movies, correct? Whereas yeah. we see her as the flawed, you know, human she is, and she's just trying to live her life. But you see of like, yeah, what the expectations of one of those movies is. So you, you can see it both ways. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, I, I do want to shout out one random thing about the movie that I really enjoyed, which is that this is one of the few movies I've seen where a character will get blackout drunk and then uh, later on, you know, a character, another character will refer to things that that character said or did, but you never saw them yourself as the viewer. Right. 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 Uh, I just thought that was a really clever and disorienting way to show uh, the state of her drunkenness is that all this stuff is happening that she didn't even know about while she was blackout drunk and also how easy it is for him to gaslight her too right because not all that is true yeah like he's like you you accept it's true but kind of just making that up um but speaking uh there there is a point i want to make about all the dudes right I just found that to be a fascinating way to view this film, right? Dan Stevens' character, he is understandably, like, mad at her for, like, what, not having a job and kind of just, like, partying and, like, maybe wasting her life a little or something. So he's putting that judgment on her. And I think there's there's maybe some sort of, like, you know, they've had a long relationship, so there's probably some sort of codependency there, too, where they're both kind of assholes sometimes, but it also seems like a relationship where they've kind of learned to live with that. But I found it interesting that, you know, he tries to trick her into coming with him later on. And the young dude, that scene, guys, the scene in the playground where it goes from pushing to Oscar, like, assaulting her, was so hard to watch. And the young guy is just like, he's not doing anything. He's just standing there. And I'm like, oh, that is is also every guy who's like, just doesn't step in when she gets too real. Yeah. It frustrated me more, actually, when um, they were at the bar um, Mm -hmm. and... Oscar, I'm sorry, Jason Sudeikis' character, I can't remember their names, um, was threatening to go to the playground to go on a rampage. And Anne Hathaway was trying to stop them. And the young guy, just he just gets in the car with with Jason Sudeikis and they just drive off together. He's completely enabling him, but he doesn't even try to stop. Yeah, he doesn't even try to stop him. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Well, yeah, I think it's it's about how most people are weak, and weakness is uh, often just conformity, going along w- with mm-hmm. the flow, indifference to the suffering of others, right? Um, is is one form of weakness that I think this movie is highlighting in a really effective mm-hmm. way. Um, so. Cool. Well, uh, I, I have to say, unfortunately, Jeff Kanata has had to go again uh, due to childcare reasons, but we really appreciated him joining us for, for a little bit. Uh, do we have any other closing thoughts on this? I'm Piers Linney. Join me for Rethinking Business, a new podcast series brought to you by NatWest. Let's face it, the path to business success is rarely straightforward. That's why in this series, we're hearing from businesses who are thinking differently. My guest this week is Freddie Garland, founder of Freddie's Flowers. I think having someone who is able to advise you is critical. It's essential to have a a good sounding board for when you've got a question. That's Rethinking Business by Nat West. Subscribe now. This movie, I think there's a lot... To so digest, much. lot to anal- uh, analyze. Well, what do you guys think about the final, like climactic decision? Right, that whole plan. Do I, were you surprised by her decision to like actually go to Seoul and basically taking on faith that whatever right. voodoo was happening would happen backwards? I mean, I would have preferred a little bit more uh, explanation. You know, maybe ten percent more explanation of how the mechanics of this world work. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you know, it's it's fine in a movie that. In a movie where you believe that uh, no one has ever stepped foot in this playground at this specific mm-hmm. time of day in the last you know few decades, uh, and that it transforms you into a monster across the other side of like, the world sure. if you do step into it, if you if you're willing to buy that stuff, then I feel like oh the yeah. idea that it's the opposite of that when you go to Seoul is, is not too far out of their own possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we talk f- frequently about how much movies should give away, how much they should reveal, how much plot, how, you know, how, how clear should they be about the rules. I mm-hmm. think uh, I could have used a, few, a little bit more rules, but not that much. Um, yeah. it, it didn't quite strike the right balance for me, but overall I'd say it worked. How about you, HT? Yeah, I felt like there were some parts. It was it was a flawed movie. It the, especially par- the parts with the um, the kaiju elements and that not being completely in- integrated into the story. But I really liked its commentary and it being sort of uh, a social commentary thriller and its whole um, metaphor of the toxic mas- masculinity. So I, I really enjoyed it overall. And it was just so refreshing and unpredictable. And, and the ending worked for you? Like her going there, oh, um, you, you just thought, did you know what that was what was happening when she was doing mm- it? I sort of guessed it, but um, I mean, it was a heightened reality anyway. Yeah, so yeah. I guess, like, I yeah. guess I just kind of went along for the ride. They needed to wrap it up somehow. <laughs> <laughs> Something had to happen. I like yeah, the slow exactly. realization, though. Like, I did, at first we didn't quite know what she was doing, and the slow realization was like, "Oh, it's it's gonna go backwards. It's gonna, it's gonna work the other way, guys. It's so cool." I, well, I, I like, really I, I, you know, uh, one of my favorite aspects of the movie is how Jason Sudeikis' character Oscar acts in that scene, which is he's a coward, right? Mm-hmm. He's revealed for who he truly is. Uh, and so, th- again, I know Jeff's not here to rebut me, but that character just felt really consistent to me throughout the whole mm-hmm. movie, right? I did not feel that he took a different turn that was unbelievable or anything like that. So, mm-hmm. uh, anyway, so those are our thoughts on Colossal, I guess. Uh, we really enjoyed it. We suggest you watch it if you have a chance. And watch uh, his other movies. Like, yeah, yeah, watch Time Crimes. I will a, check them out. Time Crimes is where you want to start, HT. Yeah, okay. it's, Time Crimes. It's so. And then he was like, 
wasn't he like teasing on Twitter? He's like, uh, what about a Time Crimes 2? Yeah, he said on Twitter that he's going to make a spiritual successor oh, to Time man. Crimes. Mm. I love this man. Uh, I and love yeah, him Time so Crimes much. is one of my favorite science fiction movies of all time. So uh, okay. I'm, I'm a big fan of that movie and uh, glad to see he is dramatically expanding his scope uh, mm-hmm. and the kind of movie that he's trying to make and still taking genre films and tweaking them a little, make them more interesting, sure. make, yeah. give us something we haven't seen before. So I'm, I'm glad to see that he's kind of recovered from Open Windows, which wasn't really well-received. That was the Sasha Gray and Elijah Wood movie. I actually haven't seen that based on like how like the, the reviews just weren't so it good. Is it, Netflix, really it is on Netflix, I believe. Yeah. So if you want to check it out there, yeah. I'll probably check that out. But Extraterrestrial is also good. That's like his spin on an alien invasion movie. And, of course, it's about a relationship. And he, mm. he, just, he does this so well. You can find more episodes of this podcast at slashfilmcast.com. Email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Uh, next week, what are we going to be doing next week, Devendra? I'm pretty sure – well, actually, we'll tell you at the end of this episode. In the meantime, HT, where can we find more of your work on the internet this week? So you can find me at slashfilm.com, and you can find me on Twitter at htranbui. Um, and I also run my podcast, Millennial Falcon Podcast, which you can also find us on Twitter at Falcon Podcast. And we are on SoundCloud, Google Play, and uh, iTunes podcast as well. All right. Devendra Hardware, how about you? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Devendra, and I write about tech and gadget.com. Find all my stuff at davechen.net. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. Next week, King Arthur, right? King Arthur. Sure. Be talking about I, am, I am very excited I, about that. I am shocked that you're excited for this. I it mean, looks so dumb. It looks it, like it my does look kind very, of very silly. Um, yeah. But yeah, King yeah. Arthur is what we'll be reading next week, and uh, I am looking forward to talking about it with you guys because uh, it's going to make for an interesting review. No ma- I, I anticipate it's going to be an interesting review, no matter what, because <laughs> that is a movie that looks interesting. Uh, it doesn't look good. It looks like Gods of Egypt interesting. You know? yeah, it, it, it doesn't looks look like, boring. Yeah. It looks yes. like Gods of Egypt, but set in you know the, the Middle Ages. Right. Yeah. Uh, also with racist names, but we'll get to that. <laughs> uh, racist names and more on the next episode of the Slash Filmcast. All right, everyone. Welcome to the Slash Filmcast After Dark. Uh, the after show for the Slash Filmcast, where we talk about a variety of random topics that may or may not have any importance to anyone. Um, and probably don't. Probably don't. Just probably completely inconsequential. But we know listeners love it, so uh, yeah. we don't hate this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. we don't hate it. Uh, <laughs> we, we are at best ambivalent about it. Uh, yeah. But Divinger Hardware, you, you want to talk about Lost City of Z, right? Sure. Yeah. yeah. I really enjoyed it, and uh, I'm so I remember. I think you were kind of lukewarm on it, right? Yeah, I, I was lukewarm on it, and then that lukewarm has since turned into active dislike. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yeah. okay. Not a fan. Uh, Not a fan. Yeah, I saw it this weekend, and it's I, I I found it to be kind of fascinating, but also James Gray, I think, is like uh, like uh, what's his face, the Midnight Special director. Um, he makes these quiet little movies, right? He makes. Very. Uh, this is a big movie for him. Like, given where the last few things he's done, he did The Immigrant, which was fantastic. Two Lovers, which is also very good. We Own the Night, which is a really good-looking movie. That's yeah, it's all right. But Two Lovers and The Immigrant, I think, are some of the best American independent films that uh, we've gotten. 
over the past few Jeff years. Jeff Nichols, by the way, I think is who you're referring yes, to. Yes, Jeff Nichols. Midnight Special and Loving. He's the guy that directed those. Yeah. So I love these types of independent directors who can tell stories in a kind of unconventional ways, usually with very few characters. Um, this movie just felt like – it felt so old school. It felt like an old like 1950s or 1960s like adventure film. Uh, you know, it's it's about the search for this city, which may or may not exist in the Amazon. But it's also about like that drive, like what would drive somebody to do that and the cost that that would have on someone's family, like the time span that this movie covers kind of astounded me. And uh, there are just points too where it's just it feels like a pure adventure, but it also doesn't feel like it's pro-colonialist uh, garbage. I think it does a balance of like um, – you know, saying like, oh, th- these people are out there mapping these worlds and everything. Uh, but th- by the way, the natives have, you know, th- they have something to contribute to our understanding of humanity as well. Uh, so I-, I thought it did all that really well. And there are points too, like it has a great, uh, nice, like quiet score. But there are times where either the score or I don't know if it's like a separate music selection, where it just kind of swells up into this like the cl- classic adventure film sounding thing that. Yeah, it just really worked for me. So I, I, I really like this movie, Dave. Yeah, uh, you know, you were talking about what the movie's about. It's about this obsession with you know going to this lost city. I wish it was about that. You know, I, I, I didn't. Uh, to be honest, I didn't know what the movie was about. The, it introduced a lot of really intriguing ideas, mm-hmm. um, like uh, for instance, Sienna Miller's character. Who just ends up being like most of the other characters. She's she it, she's doing the. Uh, twenty is she? No, they're early twentieth century, right? She's doing the early twentieth century equivalent of uh, being concerned wife on other end of phone, right? Yes. Sure. Uh, so instead of being on the other end of phone, she's uh, she's writing letters and 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 stuff. And there there's kind of an interesting element of her being an early feminist, and maybe that's going to lead somewhere. Nope, that, and that was interesting. Like, it, uh, no, it, it was not interesting. Her, it went, it went it was... absolutely nowhere whatsoever. Like, it it, it it introduces a lot of these interesting threads that just <laughs> don't go anywhere at all. And uh, it's an aspect of her character, right? Like, it, early on, almost immediately, like as soon as we see her, like we know she's not kind of typical. She's not somebody who's trying to conform to all these roles, and the fact that. Like to me, like the the way, to, yeah, I'm not gonna spoil this movie, yeah. but she does things towards the end, which I think would be heartbreaking for any mother and any wife to do. But that, she does, that in my opinion, are totally unearned. Like the, sure. the, the movie has done nothing to build up to that. And yeah, it's also, I mean, this is based on a true story too, right? Like I, right. I wonder how much they were confined by. You know what actually happened and everything. I, I don't think they were confined that much, and it just because I, you know I've read articles about how this movie deviates dramatically from even mm-hmm. what was in the book, let alone right, which, right. by the way, the book deviates significantly from what was in real life. I just feel like the movie ended up succumbing to that dreaded disease, biopic syndrome, which is it wanted to just check off a bunch of events that happened uh, without. A lot of the connective tissue that would join those events together and make them mean something. Mm-hmm. I, um, so, so I, I there, say, there were some good elements about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I like Charlie Hunnam. Uh, I thought the movie was, was really looked, good. Looked amazing. Mm-hmm. It just it, it, you you are convinced that they are in the jungle. Yeah, uh, Robert Pattinson. Like I love the Charlie yeah. Hunnam Robert Pattinson combination. I I don't think I would ever have thought that. Like seeing them in sort of like a really rugged adventure movie and actually believing. That they were out there doing the stuff, and yeah, they were doing some. It was a pretty crazy shoot, apparently. But uh, to, to what you were saying, Dave, like I do think the movie does set its. The idea is pretty clear early on, right? Like uh, Charlie Hunnam's character is this guy who 
because of something his father did or yeah something his father did like his family standing is not very good mm, and his yeah. entire goal is to like I, I gotta get some medals I gotta like add some, get some prestige from my family I'm gonna go find this lost city because uh, this could this could lead to something and somewhere in the midst of that so it's it's the obsession to attain status as well uh, as well as to like that's kind of what leads him in the first journey. And then later on, like, it's a combination of that and, like, this, there is something really new here and we should really pay attention to it. I wish the movie did a better job of conveying that, like, fascination of, like, uh, kind of what makes him so obsessed with the city itself. But I, I don't know. I just found it. Um, yeah, like, Zodiac, it, Zodiac mm-hmm. is a movie about obsession. You know, this movie, to me, didn't focus enough on any specific area to be mm-hmm. about anything. It could have been about the relationship between fathers and sons, about this uh, husband and his wife, about this guy's obsession. It introduces all these interesting threads, never really does anything with them. Uh, so it, it felt like a lot of unfulfilled potential. I'm not well, saying – The obsession w- thread goes all the way through though. The what? The obsession – yeah, that's true. That's true. You're right yeah. about that. You're right. And then, it, then it's almost contagious. Then it carries over to the, to the next generation. Yeah, fair enough. And almost like, almost like how the sins of his father, right, or the mistakes of his father carried over onto him. Um, there's, you know, there's, it definitely sketches, right? So, yeah, Zodiac yeah. is a very long movie and it had the time to really linger. It has a lot of characters. This movie has very few characters and it, you know, we're either in the forest, um, and then we get to like a, a place I actually didn't think the movie would go at some point, but it's either, you know, we're at home with them or in the forest. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I could see what you're saying. It does set up a lot for me though. That one aspect of like what this obsession could lead to. And I actually don't know the conclusion of the actual story if it ended in the same way or not, but it felt like it felt like a fitting ending. It felt like a very James Gray ending. Uh, you should check out his other films, Dave, because I think you would actually like them too. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I uh, I believe that I would be a fan. He makes the kind of movies that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we complain about that don't get made anymore. Exactly. You know? In this movie, it, it it just feels also like a movie that shouldn't exist today. It feels like a movie from the 50s or the 60s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For better or worse. Uh, but, yeah. So I, I want to support James Gray. I like the idea of James Gray. I just wasn't a huge fan of this movie, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um uh, I thought Vulture did an interesting interview with James Gray in April. Uh, the title of the article is James Gray and the Struggle of the Middle Class Filmmaker. Uh, and yeah. he's part of a class of filmmaker here. Quote, people assume because I'm a director, I make tons of money. I am struggling financially. I'm very lucky I get to do what it is I want to do. I've made good or bad, very uncompromising movies. The movies exactly that I wanted to make. And that is a beautiful gift. So I'm not complaining about that. But I struggle. I have a hard time paying my bills. I am 47 years old. I live in an apartment. I can't buy a house. If I were coming of age in 1973, I would be in Bel Air. The whole reason for this is exactly what we were talking about, where the middle is gone. Now you have franchises, and you have, I made a movie on my iPhone. This is the economic system in a nutshell. Five directors make Marvel, and then there's the rest of us who are trying to scrounge around to find the money to make films. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If the audience only gets to see Marvel, then they only want Marvel. And if they only want Marvel, only Marvel is made. I don't even have a problem with Marvel. The problem is not the specifics of each movie. The problem is it's the only movie you can see now in a multiplex. And when it's the only game in town, you're looking at the beginning of the death throes of an art form. End quote. So quotes like that, Devendra, make me really want to support Lost City of Z, yeah. you know, but I just yeah. wasn't a huge fan of the movie. Um, you are a disappointment, Dave. I am. Yeah, I'm, I disappoint everyone. Very much so. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> but for sure. check out uh, like his other movies. The Immigrants, I think, is a great 
he tells such great um, small stories about America. Mm. So it's also interesting that this one, yeah, is is actually more of a you know more of a British story. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, Devendra, anything else you've been up to these days? Like, what's uh, what's going on over there in um, New York City? How's bunch how, of stuff? How's it like? Uh, you're still living in Brooklyn, right? I am still in Brooklyn. Uh, I did just go through the Tribeca Film Festival. Yeah, um, how was that? And I did not get to see any movies. Oh, because yeah, spent... you, you were covering and doing interviews with people, right? Yeah. yeah, well, I was spending all my time in the like VR stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of VR stuff, so yeah, check out that coverage on Engadget. But highlights there... of the festival? Yeah, highlights. There is really good VR now, right? We've seen, we've seen people kind of playing around with it for the past couple of years. But I went through this one thing... Um, called The Last Goodbye, which is about a Holocaust survivor who goes back to uh, to the former concentration camp where he was sent and where his entire family was killed, right? And you're going back and you're walking through this with him in 360-degree video, and they did this thing where they, like, painstakingly re- recreated, like, several rooms of the concentration camp and, like, one of the trains that they used to send families there, and that is that is a strange experience. That you know, other than actually going and visiting these places, uh, it did it. It really transports you there, and man, like when people seem to be forgetting about what the Holocaust was and everything that happened, like it is a stark reminder. Like there are points where you see the ovens where they, you know, disposed of bodies. You see, there is one shot of just like a pile of shoes, thousands of shoes. And you think of what happened there. So, yeah, seeing those things in VR, and they did this thing where you can actually make eye contact with him as well, because it's, uh, it's stereoscopic. And uh, they did this, uh, just the way they captured him. They It wasn't like a flat 2D plane. They got him like almost in like a hologram form. Um, but you can make eye contact with this character. Uh, we've come a long way in VR, right? This is a really important story. And, uh, you know, this is he had to tell it. It's not like something somebody could tell for him. So yeah, how, how do people access this at this point? Like, is it possible for them to like? Do they need to? Yeah. Do you need to get a PC, get an Oculus, right? Like, Not, I think eventually they may release a Oculus, but actually, what they they built is this weird. Um, it's almost like a museum like experience. So, right. so so you cannot yeah. do it if you're at home. Basically. You can't do it at home. You need but, to go to like a traveling thing yeah. that has it. It right. may be set up at a museum or something eventually, but right. like the way thing I went through, like there was a docent who helped me through it, and uh, I took off my shoes, and I just entered this space that was like a sacred space almost to experience this thing. It felt, uh, you know, it just felt very, very meaningful and very emotional. Um, so, yeah, it's not something that you could easily translate to your home, but I'm sure just sitting through this thing at home, if you could, would still affect you as much. Uh, but, yeah, I, I just like seeing that this, you know, medium is being used in good ways. I don't know if it's ever going to be something everyone will have in their homes. But for things like this, uh, it's definitely like you can't get this by just watching a movie, you know. Have you heard of this thing called The Void, Devendra? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I did that. Or I did uh, part of that. So I, uh, did I talk about the Ghostbusters thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. Yeah, so that's The I, Void. I recently drove to Las Vegas to go see Hans Zimmer. Uh, on the way there, we stopped in Salt Lake City. And uh, I think Slash Filmcast listener Danish uh, tweeted at me. He said, hey, make sure you check out The Void because The Void is only in like three locations in the world mm-hmm. and one of them is Salt Lake City. Uh, and I looked it up and The Void is essentially a VR experience, but there are objects uh, all around you like mm-hmm. door frames and walls oh, and guns yeah. and all this stuff that are mapped into mm-hmm. the VR world. So you basically in your real life – you reach uh, and pick up a gun, 
mm-hmm. and in the VR world, when you reach out and pick up, you you you're also picking up a gun. Yeah. You feel the gun in your hand, uh, and you you can shoot the gun, and you see it do crazy stuff in the VR world, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're, you're wireless, right? You were wearing the backpack. Uh, well, I didn't actually do it, you okay. know, but uh, but that's that's what it is, and I was very intrigued by it. We we just ultimately didn't have time, yeah. but I always thought to myself, huh, I wonder what the vo- the void would have been like. Yeah. Well, Sounds if like you, you tried it out, here, right? Well, I, they so the void's technology powers the Ghostbusters VR thing right. at uh, Madame Tussauds in New York. And it's pretty cool. You you put it on the backpack, you do get a uh, you know a big uh, proton gun. Um, and yeah, what is cool is that, yeah, you're actually walking between rooms wearing a completely, you know, wireless VR headset, or at least the computer's on your back, which works because you feel like a Ghostbuster with, uh, you know, with the nuclear reactors on your back as well. But the fact that I could, like, move from room to room uh, while still being tracked, and also there were other people with me. So they were like other characters in this Ghostbusters thing, and we were all, like, experiencing these weird, uh, you know, virtual. Uh, characters uh, kind of uh, attacking us and stuff at the same time. It was all pretty cool. Like they've definitely gone a long way. It, it was kind of low res and a little clunky. So, but I do think like that sort of like shared, um, you know, shared VR that could track just about everything. That's going to be a huge thing for sure. Yeah, it's it's very. It seems very immersive, right? Mm-hmm. In a way that you can't get with any other medium. Speaking of immersive. Uh, at the Regal Meridian Theater in downtown Seattle, they they are opening up 4DX Avenger Hardware. Okay. 4DX. I you still remember you, you saying. It. I think if you if you Google 4DX review, yes, I'm pretty sure your review yeah. is one of the first ones. Um, yep. It's not on the first page of results, but it's uh, on the second page. Is it? Did you do Batman v Superman? Is that right? I did do Batman. Yeah, Batman v Superman in 4DX made watching a bad movie worse. That's on the second page of results. So, yeah. congrats, Devendra. You, you got your wish. Uh, but, yeah, 4DX, apparently a terrible idea, uh, even though they spent probably a lot of money to bring it to Seattle. Yeah, I, I don't care. Have you had anything like 4DX since the 4DX experience? Like any any uh, enhance, like movie enhancement technology that you actually were excited by other than VR? You know, between well, have you th- those Dolby theaters? Have you been to one of those? Is no, Dolby I don't know what this theaters? is. So, like, what what is this Dolby theater? Like, what is? So th- we have one in uh, at Times at the Times Square AMC, but the Dolby Vision Theater is basically um, crazy. It's like laser projection really really bright screens um but also it's the only theater right now that does hdr which is the whole Mm. high dynamic range thing that you're getting in newer 4k tvs and that like uh, i was really skeptical of all this stuff for a while 4k like you really will not notice the difference between a 1080p and a 4k stream on a normal tv but on you know a big movie theater uh having more resolution is good but hdr is the big thing right like just the depth of it seeing like deeper shades of black in certain scenes like i i usually show off an episode of daredevil when people come over just to like tell them about this technology and just like the way it lights certain things and the way like yeah better black levels and the overall contrast of it looks it looks amazing and having that in a theater um where i think we've lost a lot of brightness too because so many movies have pushed to 3d uh just going to theater seeing a huge bright image like that it's uh, it's pretty good. I don't know if they have any in Seattle yet. Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. But I will look it up. Dolby mm-hmm. Cinema, basically, is what Dolby we're Vision. Yeah. yeah, Dolby Vision. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. Uh, yeah, well, Dolby so- Cinema is is the official name. Yeah, using Dolby Vision. Yeah. Sometimes it makes me wish I lived in uh, New York City, uh, <laughs> but Seattle is also pretty freaking amazing 
movie town. You know, a lot of uh, we have the biggest film festival in in the country, for instance. So, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, in, in terms of number of movies and in terms of uh, attendance, I believe. So, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, really, really excited about this year's Seattle International Film Festival. Bummer, you didn't get to see any Tribeca. Is there was there anything coming out of Tribeca that <laughs> there was a lot of buzz? You know, was there anything? Not about- really. The Circle had its big premiere there, but. That was the night oh, before. Oh, tell us about the circle, Davindra. Tell us yeah. about the circle. This is the new Tom Hanks movie based on the book by David Eggers, right? Yeah, it's it's real bad. <laughs> it's real bad. I there's I there's very little good I can say about this movie. I started reading the book too, and the book is just it has its moments, but it does feel like a really uh, superficial take on like you know the the end times via social media or something. Um, and uh, the book kind of annoys me too because David Eggers talked about how little research he did. Right? He's talking about like he's he's such a smart guy. He's figuring this all out on his own. Like he doesn't need to know what's what's actually happening. Uh, but the movie is just like it feels like it was ripped out of James Ponsold's hands and like edited with a hacksaw. Like there's no motivation for anything. We're introduced to uh, to Emma Watson's character, and almost immediately she's thrust into the circle. We don't we don't really get a sense of her life before well, we see her. Hold on. You know? So this movie has 17 percent Rotten Tomatoes. I'm going to yeah. read the Wikipedia premise of this movie. Uh, May Holland is an ordinary and unaccomplished young woman with an ill father and a mother with a cloying voice. Interesting detail. What? Through an influential college friend, she gets a customer relations job at a powerful internet corporation, The Circle co-founded by Eamon Bailey and Tom Stenton. She quickly rises up the company ranks and is selected for a plum assignment with the Circle's newest technology, which she eagerly takes on. Soon, she finds herself in a perilous situation concerning privacy, surveillance, and freedom. May comes to learn her decisions and actions will determine the future of humanity. You want to you drop some spoilers for the Circle? I mean, I don't care. I'm sure. not going to see this movie. Yeah, so so spoilers, we're, we're for, spoilers the circle. for the Circle. So, yeah, What's so, weird, and I'm going to spoil both the book and the movie, too. Yeah. Um, yeah, this movie. So immediately, that's you know, this girl supposedly down her luck. We see her doing like a job in like a bland corporate environment, and she gets the magical call to like go interview at the Circle. We don't really get a sense of her life though before that. So it's uh-huh. most of the opening of the movie is her just being like, "Wow, look at this campus, and look look at this free food, and look at all this stuff." It's um, like it's like Google basically, right? It is. It's very much like a Google Facebook hybrid. Yeah. That's what the Circle really is. Yeah, like and Blue Book from Ex Machina, basically for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but actually, yeah, that that was actually something that could be uh, conceivable. Um, but yeah, this movie—it's basically like if social media were to somehow lead to a complete, like I don't know, totalitarian world, right? Because the uh, the company here is like uh, they they worship sharing content, I guess, just in a similar way that Facebook does, but also erasing privacy in like ridiculous ways. Like, there's a point where. Uh, the major innovation that they talk about in the movies are these tiny little video cameras that are like the size of like maybe a ping pong ball or something, but which are connected to satellites, Dave, and they just stream video in ultra in like HD quality. And you could just stick it anywhere. You have all these cameras everywhere and just see everything, see everything happening in the world. Right. Um, I don't even care that, you know, something like that wouldn't be possible with battery life or whatever. It's more like. Nobody questions anything like this movie treats its characters like idiots. Uh, Even the main character, she doesn't really question why any of this is happening. Um, And eventually they use this technology to start like, uh, let's let's have a little contest. Let's see if we can hunt down a a criminal 
in uh, 30 minutes using all the all the cameras around the world and all the phones. It's like and all the, the God's Eye media. from uh, Fast and Furious. It is like the God's Eye and making it – turning it into like a feature or like a new product from this company. And they do it and they find yeah, you know, somebody who is a criminal. Um, uh, like just seeing these social media users run out to find these people. Um, but yeah, this, this leads to a point where they go and try to track down um, a maze – estranged ex-boyfriend who's like living out in the woods somewhere and off the grid off the grid but they track him down to a cabin right they track him down and these people like they chase him out of his house and it's a it's a high-speed chase dave and then they're following him with their cameras and they're following him with drones and a drone pops up in front of him and he drives off a bridge he's killed by social media dave um (laughs) <laughs> As and so the, many millions of people have been, so, so many millions. He's of killed by social media, yeah. and this is all being streamed live to also to millions of people. Mm. Um, so it's it immediately shows you the downsides of this too. And in the movie, uh, May starts to try to get revenge in a certain way. Although it seems like she's also on board with giving up her privacy. Um, but in the book, it actually uh, May kind of goes evil and like just like completely buys into what the company is doing. Um, what, as a movie, it just doesn't work. That was the thing. Like James Ponsel is an, as a director, I love uh, because of the way he directs actors. I think he gets really natural performances from people. Uh, nobody is good in this movie. Like Emma Watson feels completely wooden. Even Tom Hanks, who we all love, I, I don't. Heard, I, I heard don't... someone say that this movie made them question whether Emma Watson was ever a good actor. There is that. It's it's completely wooden. But also, none of the performances in this movie are good. Like, John Boyega is here, and he doesn't know what he's doing. Um, yeah, it's it's a movie of terrible performances cut together in a way with zero motivation, uh, with some of the most, like, ludicrous set pieces that I've ever seen. And, uh, yeah, doesn't understand technology. So it just feels like the entire movie is like, technology is bad. Okay, it's it's going to lead to the end of the world. And that's pretty much it. It doesn't actually say anything interesting. So I wrote up a, a piece about this on Gadget, and you can you can check that out. Uh, but yeah, I just it's it's not good. And the guy the guy from uh, Boyhood is in it, so that's something. Uh, oh, the the guy who's acting set the world on fire in Boyhood. I, that's incredibly mean. But he's been in a couple of movies, but I'm also not, he, he's yeah. not terrible. He's I did in not, it. I did not find him to be an impressive actor in Boyhood, but. Um, well. Hey, uh, speaking of uh, yeah. Richard Linklater, though, have you purchased the Criterion Collection uh, before Four? series yet? Yes, yes, I have. I have not watched them yet, but I own. You've not watched them, yeah. So I, I have not bought. Th- that is one thing I'm going to buy this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, is is if I'm going to buy any hard copies of anything, it's going to be the Before trilogy on Criterion. Um, but they're I kinda, in my life. That's all I need to know, right? I'll watch. Yeah, I mean, I kind of curious is like how good the uh, special features are on those mm-hmm. movies. Um, well, also, we've never had a uh, so before Sunrise that was only available on DVD for a while because that's a that's a right. midnight movie. It's true. And I think there was an HD stream on iTunes and stuff, but this is like the first time you get a really nice, pristine version of that movie. So I think that alone makes it worthwhile. I think the hugest bummer about that Criterion set, and it, it is, it just kills me, Devendra, is it is the most ugly ass box art. It's, probably it's possibly less bad of, in person. I possibly think. of any Criterion yeah. box set is, if you not not the um, not the cover for the whole thing that actually looks very beautiful. It says the Before Trilogy on the cover, but if you – the individual movies, like Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, yeah. Before Midnight, it looks like a ninth grader drew them. 
You know, I, I think the, it looks better in person. Maybe I don't, I don't know what it is, but it didn't really bother me as specifically much. Specifically before midnight, it just yeah. that does not look at all like Ethan Hawke. <laughs> you cannot look at the before midnight <laughs> Criterion art and tells me tell me that that looks anything like Ethan Hawke. Artistic license, Dave. Come on. Dylan Schwan in the uh, in the chat room right now says the art is fucking atrocious. Ethan Hawke's face is mangled on every cover. It, it really is Ethan Hawke's face. Like Julie Delpy <laughs> looks okay. Ethan Hawke looks like a disaster on the the box art. Uh, I mean that's a shame, but yeah, you know, I'm gonna stick the disc in and watch what's on that. <laughs> but uh, you know, part of buying a Criterion is for the uh-huh. art. You, like you're, it's a collector's item too, uh-huh. right? So you, yeah, you kind of want the art to be awesome. Yeah. I did. There's a uh, Guillermo del Toro Criterion that has like Chronos and Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth in it, mm. in like a book form. I picked that up. That is that is nice packaging. Looks good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, honest, I'm not joking. That art is <laughs> is part partly keeping me from getting that that Blu-ray. Um, that plus the fairly high price point right now. I think it's it'll pretty high. But there was a 50 percent off Criterion sale. Ah. Next time it happens like every couple months. Yeah, I, well, Dominguez, I'm pretty sure I pointed it out to you the last time it happened, right? No, that was a different. Was it, that was a different sale? I, I think. see. That was something else. All right. um, but it was at that point at Amazon. It was only like sixty something, and now I think it's back up. Uh, someone in the chat room is asking, uh, "Can any movie be in the Criterion Collection? Right? Like, what I, is the yeah. uh, what is the the the, the criteria? It's sixty one dollars on Amazon right now, by the way. Yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. Eh, it's okay. Um, the Criterion Collection, for this is from the website, is a continuing series of important classic and contemporary films on home video. Our editions often feature restored film transfers, commentary tracks, and other supplemental features that the company pioneered when it released its first Laserdiscs, Citizen Kane and King Kong at the end of 1984. Ever since, Criterion has been working closely with filmmakers and scholars to ensure that each film is presented as its maker would want it seen and published in an edition that will deepen the viewer's understanding and appreciation of the art of cinema. Uh, and then when they say, like, how do they decide which films? They say, we aim to reflect the breadth of filmic expression. We try not to be restrictive or snobby about what kinds of films are appropriate. An auteur classic, a Hollywood blockbuster, or an independent B-horror film has to be taken on its own terms. All we ask that each film in the collection be an exemplary film of its kind. Of course, we can't just pick movies and put them out. The process of getting the rights to release a film can take years. Even if we want a film, we can't work on it unless the film's owner grants us rights. End quote. Uh, yeah, uh, there there is a huge variety of movies. That, you know, Michael Bay had a bunch of Criterion movies. Armageddon, Armageddon, yeah. on the Criterion. Rock too, right? Yeah, the Although Rock, the Rock I, I believe I, that that deserves a Criterion. Come on, <laughs> I don't think the Rock ever got a Blu-ray Criterion, right? Mm. I don't think so. Yeah, there were a bunch of early Criterions that never got transferred over. Speaking of um, Blu-rays. You, you know, we we've been talking about Ava- we talked about Avatar a couple weeks ago, uh, and yeah, I, I don't think there is a The Rock Blu-ray on Criterion, which nope. is I'm looking yeah, huge nothing. tragedy, huge tragedy. I mean, bigger tragedy that uh, there's still no True Lies Blu-ray. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. We've been talking yeah. about Avatar. There is no True Lies Blu-ray. There is no, no Abyss. Abyss Blu-ray. Ugh. Both things that I think we prefer uh, <laughs> James Cameron work on instead of. Uh, a, you know, and I try to say this every time we bring Avatar up the Avatar sequel. stuff, but yeah. yeah, that is that is partially why I'm <laughs> I'm just not into the Avatar movies. There, there's so many other things I want to see from him, but oh, well. <laughs> well, you're saying True Lies is another thing. The you'd rather he do the Blu-ray for True Lies instead of a new movie? 
Yes, for sure. <laughs> You'd rather he go back instead of no, well, press I, forward, you know? I mean, I'd rather see him do different things. You know, like, do look at what's possible now. Like, when he did The Abyss, like, I want to see him work in new mediums and new formats, you know? Like, and that's, I think, part of partially what's drawing him to Avatar. I just wish it was, like, another world or something, because I, I don't know if I'll care about any of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. All right, man. Well, I think that's going to bring us to the end of uh, this Slash Filmcast After Dark. Thanks for sticking around, Devendra. This has been fun. It's been fun. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC. 